This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to Music to My Ears. In this episode, BBC Music Magazine's editor Oliver Condy talks to the former Guardian editor and now principal of Lady Margaret Hall, Oxford, Alan Rusbridger. While the editor of a national paper during the Arab Spring, WikiLeaks controversies, the newspaper hacking scandal, riots in the UK and more, Alan Rusbridger found time to learn and perform Chopin's Ballade No. 1, a feat he describes in his book Play It Again. Here we chat about the music and musicians that have been part of his life, but I start by asking him about the role music played during those busy days at The Guardian back in 2011. Before we get going, here's pianist Murray Pariah performing a short passage from That Chopin Ballad. When, when I was editing The Guardian, and that was really the, the point of the book that I wrote, um, played again, music was a kind of um, emergency escape. So there was so much uh, pressure and relentless um, work involved in editing a newspaper. But, but music felt like a sort of necessary uh, little sanctuary. If you could just find 20 minutes a day, then then somehow you could get through the day. Um 
at, at Oxford, uh, there is more time to walk about and think and discuss and all the things that universities are famous for, uh, and uh, and also to play music collaboratively. So I, I, um, actually, it reminds me of my days when I was at university, when I used to spend you know <laughs> most most of my time playing with friends rather than working. Um, and so I, I suppose music has sort of come back to be more central to me in the last five or six years. Mm, because I certainly reading played again, it seems to me that music was a bit of a saviour during that particularly knotty time. I mean, you know, as, as you say in the book, you know, you had the Arab Spring, you had the WikiLeaks, you had the hacking scandal, you had a lot to deal with, and yet you still managed to find time to practice Chopin. Yeah, and again, that was one of the points of writing the book was that I, I think for most people, not continuing with an instrument is one of their biggest regrets. Uh, and normally they're excused to themselves, which I'm sure you know feels completely genuine. You know, um, once life intervenes, you think, well, something has to give, and, and usually it's music. Um, and... Uh, you know, during this incredibly busy time of, of my life when we were sort of reinventing what newspapers were as well as doing all these extraordinary stories, um, to be able to find 20 minutes a day showed that it can be done. But, it, but it, you know, you have to say, that well, that's going to be one of my priorities. Um, and if that means I have to get up 20 minutes earlier in the morning, it, it's doable. Um, and then the nice sort of afterlife of the book has been the, the emails that I get every week from some part of the world of somebody saying, well, actually, I've, I've gone back to playing music and, and, and it was a huge regret that I stopped, but, but I've, I've now rediscovered it. And I think you can do a lot in 20 minutes. I think this is the fallacy is that, you know, you have to spend two or three hours a day practicing and uh, that's the only way that you'll make any progress. But if you concentrated practice for 20 minutes, even a quarter of an hour can make a huge difference. Yeah, um, I mean, you're never going to be Murray Pariah on 20 minutes a day. You know, but I was tackling this immensely difficult Chopin Ballard, and um, it's it's not a pushover by any means. Um, but I but I did manage it. Um, I you know I got I definitely got better week by week and day by day, and at the end of 18 months, I could just about play this piece. Um, uh, but if you want to be Murray Pariah, you'd be well advised to play four or five hours a day. But but you know they're, they're different different exercises. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I'd, I'd like to sort of go back to sort of the time when you sort of first got into music. You know, you know obviously the, the ch- was there much music in your household when you were a kid? I mean, was uh, or did you discover the piano is sort of slightly independently? My my mother. Uh, was a you know, a modest pianist and had wanted to play the flute, did play the flute, and then the the, the family, I, I think she couldn't afford music lessons. So I think she was a driver in trying to get me to uh, take music seriously. But the I, I suppose the thing that um, first switched me on was was singing choirs as as a as a young boy, and I, I ended up singing in Guildford Cathedral Choir uh, under a, a legendary choir director called Barry Rhodes um, mm. and um, I mean that was an incredible discipline for a boy of you know 10 or 11 to um, we, we had a rehearsal every lunchtime we had a rehearsal every evening we had evensong every evening six nights a week uh, and then you would come home after evensong having done music for three hours a day and then have to do your homework so uh, that was quite a sort of um, 
schooling in in in, in self discipline in, in confidence in performance uh, in uh, sight reading um, and alongside that I also um, took up the piano and and the clarinet so there was an awful lot of music in the life of a you know eleven twelve year old boy. So, so it's fair to say the first piece of music you sort of really loved might have been a choral work. Uh, th- there were there were lots of bits of English choral repertoire. Uh, I mean, Barry Barry Rose um, was a sort of unusual person to be running a choir um, and had been plucked, as it were, from nowhere to to run the Guildford Choir. And we recorded things like J. H. Maunder's Olivet to Calvary. <laughs> Um, which I thought was, you know, the the greatest piece of choral music ever written um, until I went to my secondary school and and my my music master there said, yeah, well, maybe you should try the B minor mass or the St. John Passion. So, um, but but I think actually the... The first piece of classical music I really loved was The Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra um, uh, of Benjamin Britten. Um, and I think it was that that launched me to play the clarinet. And I, I, I played in lots of orchestras. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's just an extraordinary piece. later in life I got to know a man called Sir Dennis Foreman who had been running Granada TV and I think was deputy chair of the Royal Opera House very grand brave war hero and over dinner one evening and he was approaching 90 then he said that he and his wife had commissioned this piece um, uh, in 1945 and it was commissioned by the Crown Film Unit for the Ministry of Education and and that makes me extra fond of this piece because when you think of how the, you know the diminishing role of music education in schools today, and there was this period just after the war when the Ministry of Education thought it was really important that young people knew the difference between a flute and a clarinet, <laughs> and the difference between a trombone and a horn, um, and that they would go to the extent of of commissioning Britain's greatest composer to 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 make music for a film which would which would be completely didactic about classical music and that's such a wonderfully uh, utopian thing to have done that it makes you quite nostalgic about the the roots of this piece as well as the fact that it's a great piece of music i think um, and so did music stay with you during your university days when you left school and did you did you have to place that behind you or was it has it been a sort of constant companion through your life because you give the impression and play it again if you sort of almost returning to the piano as an adult yes um i mean I, certainly at university i i played a lot i played chamber music um I, when I was a young reporter on the Cambridge Evening News, I managed to get away in the evenings to play in the in the Cambridge Philharmonic Orchestra. Um, I loved playing in orchestras. Uh, one of the great regrets 
on my life is now not to be playing in orchestras. It's just the most exciting thing uh, imaginable. And then, you know, um, life, um, jobs, children, marriage, um, less and less time. Uh, so I, I never completely gave up. Um, and, you know, I would play to the kids and but it was certainly in my mid to late forties was the time when I when I thought actually music has been such an important part of my life and I can't let it go and and um, so I started doing it quite seriously again. So one thing that strikes me is that the obviously the Guardian has always been a strong champion of the arts and was that something that really struck you you know having the musical background that you determined that the newspaper that you edited was always going to be strong on its music coverage. Yes, I, I, I really felt that newspapers had a kind of duty to to all the arts, but especially a paper like the Guardian. It seemed to me had a paper of a, a, a duty to the so called high arts. Um, because, um, you know, music needs audiences, it needs intelligent critics, in, intelligent contextualizers, friends, uh, and a, lo- a lot of Guardian readers, um, you know, formed the majority of audiences at concert halls in, in you know, in the South Bank and the, and the rest of Britain, um, and, you know, of course, latterly the world. Uh, and so it seemed to be really important to have a, a team of extremely knowledgeable critics who could write about it. And uh, I know newspapers are struggling at the moment um, in, in financially, um, but it still seems to me an, an important thing to uh, to be able to amplify and uh, and and criticize the the work of contemporary uh, artists. So yeah, it was a, it was an important part of the paper. Are you going to any concerts at the moment? Have you been to any live concerts in the past sort of six, seven, eight months? Um, I, I haven't, um, and um, that's terrible. And it, it's something that I missed. The, the last concert I went to was George Benjamin's 60th birthday concert at the Festival Hall, which must have been round about the beginning of March, maybe late February. And again, I remember Alfred Brendel was in the audience and he was the only person in the audience wearing a face mask, which is um, completely mm-hmm. understandable at his age. Um, uh, and it was just before the lockdown. Um, and sadly, I haven't been back to a concert since, and it's, it's something I, I really miss. Yes, I was going to say, do you palpably sort of feel that, because listening to uh, music on CDs, listening to the radio, that, that doesn't does that feel a gap? Does, do, you, do you actually miss the, the live experience? Yes, I mean, uh, I mean, I do think it's a miracle to live in the age of Spotify. I, I just do, um, <laughs> you know, that, that all, all, all the music that's ever been written is sort of, you know, you can summon up or YouTube. Um, um, uh, but that, nothing replaces the, the the live experience and the, the sort of slight sense of danger and the, the, the not knowing what it's going to sound like, or uh, and and the, the and the business of, of being in the moment with hundreds of other people um, uh, seems to add to the experience and that sort of when, when it really works when you've got, you know, a hundred, 200, 400, a thousand people in a room all totally silent and concentrated experiencing the same thing or versions of the same thing. It's, you can't replace that. Um, uh, and the, the, you know, the sooner we can get back to that, the, you know, something we all hope and pray for. 
which rather neatly leads me on to the question which is the sort of best concert you think you've ever been to the one you sometimes will think gosh you know that really did affect me and i i have a i was a changed man (laughs) well it's a it's about brendel again um uh, and i i was told that he was going to play his last concert in just before christmas in 2008 i think he was 78 79 at the time um uh, and um, so I immediately booked tickets to go to the Music Verein, which is a you know legendary, beautiful hall in Vienna, because I just thought this is going to be a, an incredible moment to see um, Brendel play his last concert. He's he's been playing um, in and around Vienna for sixty years, um, and you know it's difficult to think of a, of a a figure who's still alive who has that connection with uh, a tradition of pre-war European music making. He studied with Edwin Fischer and um, grew up in Graz. Um, and so there was this incredible sense of occasion. And the, and the piece that he chose to play was uh, was the so-called Jeune Homme, um, Piano Concerto of Mozart, which is quite a youthful piece. Um, uh, and... Um, he he came on. So, uh, the conductor was Sir Charles McCarris, who who was even older than um, Brendel. And um, I mean, there was a sense of uh, of finality, but within, but on Brendel's terms, because you know a lot of pianists sort of fade away, or they get arthritis, or they start forgetting the notes. And I think Brendel had decided he wanted to go out at his peak, uh, at a moment of his own choosing, uh, and everybody in the hall knew the significance of the occasion and he came back and he played um, a couple of um, encores um, and ending with that a wonderful Busoni Chorale Nun Com de Highland. Again, you know, in, I don't know what the music Ryan's holds, but maybe 2,000 people absolutely silent. thunderous applause and he um, gestured into the audience where where his um, pupils were um, so there was Till Fellner, Imogen Cooper and Paul Lewis because he's, he's never been a great prodigious teacher, he's, he's had a, a few really distinguished and he gestured towards them as if to say okay over to you and it was, um, it was first a, a magical occasion you know, very, very touching, and actually, I find it extraordinary that he hasn't made a comeback at all. I mean, he really has been true to his word. The final concert was the final concert. No, no, I think it was just absolutely. He, and, and I mean, well done him. Um, I mean, I have, I have, and I'm sure you have heard pianists who um, <laughs> don't know quite when to stop, um, and it, and it can it can be sad, and it can be a bit embarrassing. Um, uh, and on that on that night, Brendel was fully in command of everything, and I, I think just to decide, okay, that's it. And as you say, he now he's got a life. He still lectures and, and talks, writes poetry. Um, so um, 
you know he's he still performs but but uh, but 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 not on not, not on the keyboard yes it's funny i was talking to david zinman quite some years ago and you know he would think he was celebrating his 70th birthday at the time uh and and he was saying it's only now that i've really found that i'm getting good at this you know some musicians only really come into their prime much later yeah. i mean look at menahem pressner in his 90s yeah. you know still playing wonderfully so uh and of course musicians are very much hooked on that experience of playing to a live audience. It is their lifeblood. It is the thing that keeps them going. So, you know, I found that extraordinary with Brendel that, that he could just suddenly stop. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, I, I mean, I, I didn't know Brendel when he was a young player, but, but I understand that he really came into his own in his forties. And, uh, and it's rather lovely to see his pupil, Imogen Cooper, who, you know, I think is a great, great player. Um, who has similarly? I mean, she's always, she's always been, you know, a, a, a very very well known pianist. But I think she's playing better now than than ever. Mm. Um, and it is a wonderful thing about. I mean, it, I bet it's not true of oboists or horn players. Or, <laughs> you just don't have the puff in your sixties. But it seems that pianists can go on well into their seventies, if not eighties, and and um, and and have new things to tell us. You talked about Spotify earlier. Do you do a lot of listening? Do you manage to get through a lot of listening? Do you keep up to date with new releases and um, what soloists are up to? And not as much as I should. I'm I'm sorry to say. I mean, actually, one of, one of the nice things about the lockdown, um, uh, my wife and I have sort of taken it in turns in the kitchen in the evenings, and I think we counted the other day. We've we've cooked 150 dinners for each other. <laughs> Um, and I tended to do that. I tend to cook, start cooking around about seven, and I quite like that. Um, whatever it's called at seven o'clock on Radio Three, where um, it's a sort of blind tasting. You've no idea what's going to happen. It's the mixtape, yes, the mixtape. And then at seven thirty, there's a, a concert, and um, and it sort of put me back in love with Radio Three, which was a terribly important part of you know my musical education. I mean, it was you know back then. Of course, you could buy records, but. Um, but I, as a, as a sort of young music student, um, you would buy the Radio Times and go through it with a with a sort of felt tip pen and mark up the pieces you wanted to hear and then try and be in for them. Um, uh, and you know, times have moved on. Radio Three's function, I suppose, has changed in a bit. But but um, just that business of cooking each and evening for the last seven months listening to um whatever's on radio three between seven and nine o'clock has been really a lovely reintroduction of music back into the into the sort of uh, daily rhythm of life do you have a piece of music that you really couldn't live without um that you sort of return to uh time and time again the beethoven c-sharp minor quartet the opus 131 is a piece that i i think will live with me and absorb me for the rest of my days. wrote a play about it 
which uh, I'm sure will never be performed. It's, it's been sort of read by actors. But and uh, and what interests me about it is that it, it its composition almost exactly coincides with a great trauma in Beethoven's life. He he had uh, adopted his nephew Carl, um, and you can imagine for a, a young teenager to be living with Beethoven must have been really difficult, uh, and. There were some Viennese psychoanalysts in the 1950s who went back through all Beethoven's conservation conservation book, conversation books and uh, and sort of analysed the relationship and thought Beethoven was in a way in love with this boy. Uh, anyway, in 1826, as Beethoven is writing this piece, uh, Karl tries to kill himself. He he shoots himself, um, uh, and. That sort of glimpse of the emotional background of this piece, and uh, um, we, you know, which begins with an extraordinary dissonant fugue, um, and has the most extremes of uh, of emotions. And I think the reason those late Beethoven works are so extraordinary is because. It's all laid out for you to hear. This was the only way that Beethoven could describe what he was going through, and music was the only way that he could resolve it. Now, I think today you would go and see a shrink or you would take some pills and you you would do your best to iron out these highs and lows, but not in those days. And, and so what goes down on the page are these incredible... Uh, unmediated um, contrasts of despair and 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 joy. Um, you know, sometimes in the space of four or five bars, he'll just stop the despair and move into the joy, and then stop the joy and move into the despair. And it's the most extraordinary picture of a mind in turmoil. Um, uh, and, yeah, and there are seven movements. It's a it's a huge piece, and uh, as I say, I think you can go and listen to that for the rest of your life and still not uh, get to uh, to understand even half of what's going on. I want to move entirely differently to um, talk about the fact that you play a fazioli piano, um, and do you still have? Do you still do, have yeah. your fazioli? Yeah. Yes. Um, what sort of turned you onto that that sort of style of piano? Because, of course, you know everyone plays a Steinway, yeah. and you know that is usually the instrument most people aspire to. But what was it about the Fazioli's that really grabbed you? Well, when I started taking up the piano again in the, my late forties, early fifties, um, I, I had a music teacher in Kentish Town, um, uh, an American pianist called Michael Shack, um, and he he I, I was looking for a piano at the, at the time because I I had been playing on my my mother's baby grand challon which was fine but um but only fine and michael said i've just i've just played on the most amazing instrument i've ever played on and, and one of his pupils had bought a fazioli i'd never heard of them um and they're, they're handmade just outside venice um by paolo fazioli who's a sort of i think his parents were engineers and um furniture makers and he was an engineer and a musician and between them, they thought they could build a better piano than a Steinway. Well, um, you know, is it or isn't it? But um, uh, there are some pianists, notably Angela Hewitt, who will play nothing else, and she's got <laughs> four or five of them. 
then I think it's very difficult to break the, the stranglehold that Steinway has got on the market. But it, it, it is, I mean, the one I have is is a beautiful instrument and um, and I, I rather love the sort of story of craftsmanship and passion that goes into these instruments. Didn't you go out and see it made? Was that No, I didn't. Was I mean, I was so unknowledgeable at that point that I bought it... Um, uh, sight unseen, um, which is something I would never do now. Um, uh, and, and luckily, it, it was a wonderful. It came from Holland. Um, and finally, I'd just moved house in, in London, and I was in a Victorian semi. Um, and I just moved into a, a, a flat, which was a, um, a polytechnic with, with sort of concrete floors and very high ceilings. Uh, mm-hmm. And it sounds completely different, and it sounds absolutely—I mean, it sounded pretty good in the Victorian semi, but it, it sounds—it sounds wonderful in this new room. So I'm I'm very very happy with it. Very good, very good. Um, what would you say your sort of current musical uh, obsession, as it were, might be? Um, you know, if you, if you come across anything that that is grabbing you right well, now, I, I know exactly what it is because um, when I turned up at. Lady Margaret Hall, hoping you know that somebody might take pity on me and want to play with me. The uh, wonderful uh, emeritus professor of music, she was just stepping down, Susan Wallenberg, who has spent her whole life in in Oxford, was the first w- woman professor of, of music at Oxford, and is a Schubert scholar of great distinction. Um, and for the last three or four years, we've just been working our way through the Schubert forehand repertoire. Um, uh, in ways that have surprised even her, and so she, there, there were pieces that she didn't know. So I, I guess you know, any, any half decent pianist has has thrashed their way through the F minor fantasy, and, um, uh, and um, but there are but there are so many other pieces. Um, there's a I think my favourite is um, the variations on original theme in a flat major uh, D eight one three. Which is just a gorgeous, huge piece. I mean, they're all huge. These pieces of music. There's the um, the, the the rondo um, in uh, A major. There's the C major uh, sonata, which is you know built on a, a orchestral uh, scale, the, the so-called grand duo. So there are all these sort of pieces. I think as good as the F minor fantasy that that are much less well known and. Susan and I have have been um, uh, that's been our life together. Um, just just playing these pieces for the last, as I say, three or four years. play some of the Schubert duets but I think the F minor is possibly one of his greatest piano works and I think simply the fact that it's a duet means that it either doesn't get performed or it's not really sort of uh, drawn into that collection of, of works such as the late sonatas are. No I think they're, they're, they're great great pieces um, and I, I think you're right that, 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 um, that somehow people I don't know if they look down on forehand music or they don't take it as seriously but um, um, 
and I, I, I played those variations with with, with again, and, and somebody used used to teach me, Hilary David Wetton, um, and he had never heard of he'd never heard this piece, um, uh, and yet it's a it's a you know big twenty minutes full of um, heart heartache and, and and beauty, but I think most people just don't know it. Mm, absolutely, and Richard key changes as well. Goodness me! Yeah, I know. Well, that's the thing about Schubert, isn't it? You just you just think sometimes because I, I like I like I mean, I mean, of course, everything is now arranged, and you go on on um, Imslip, Petrucci, and and everything is arranged for everything. So if you want to play your way through Winterizer for four hands, or or mm. or. Um, Ring cycle. It's all there, or, the, or yeah, anything. But, but but you're right with with Schubert. You just think, actually, in the last moment of the, um, I think of the Rondo, um, he just goes on and on, almost showing off. You know, I can do that. You want it in this key? I can do it. I can do it in this key. Oh, let's do an enharmonic shift into this key. Um, and you just think, I have no idea where this is going. Oh, we're back in, we're back in tonic. <laughs> it's like sort of you know the cleverest boy in class who can who can just dazzling you with his technique. Yes, yes, it's probably one of the duets you can't play with the gin and tonic on the piano. Most of the time you can, but yeah, uh, it's one you need all your faculties. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, Adam Rusbridge, thank you very much indeed. That was great. Good to talk. That was Alan Rusbridge talking to me, Oliver Condy. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the team at BBC Music Magazine. Do let us know what you think of it by rating and reviewing it wherever you've been listening. If you want to find out more about BBC Music Magazine, we're available in print and various digital formats, or you can visit our website, classical-music.com, where you can read all about the latest music happenings, read thousands of reviews and a good deal more. Thank you to ACAST for hosting this podcast and to our producers, Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. <laughs>